You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hello, Blogging Heads Nation. It may not be morning in America, but it's morning on Blogging Heads. I'm Heather Hurlbert from New America. And I am Daniel Dresner from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy in the Washington Post. And this is day number X that neither of us has been offered a job in the Trump administration. <laughs> I, we have, we're going to have to start everyone for the next four years on that. That's awesome. Keep going. <laughs> um, but uh, neither have a lot of other people, as far as we can tell. And um, one of the uh, one of the more raging sources of debate in in Washington is a is it incompetence or a deliberate strategy? Are we are we deliberately dismantling the administrative state by not hiring people to fill jobs? And b the real um, the real heresy does it matter? Right. Um, both of which are challenging questions. Uh, on the first one, it. Frankly, there's strong evidence for both um, in that I, I, I tend to side, you know, my, my general rule is, is that when an executive branch is screwing up, you know, is there some deep Machiavellian design or is there incompetence? I always side with incompetence. That is almost always the general rule, you know, um, even in, in the conspiracy theory laden uh, Trump world, if something is going wrong, it's probably going wrong because people are not doing the right thing. It's not because they have some secret master plan. Um, and I would argue that, that with respect to the cabinet appointments, that clearly seems to be the case, or the sub-cabinet appointments, that clearly seems to be the case. If no other reason that even the cabinet appointments, it seemed like the, the Trump transition team kind of had it ass backwards, where they would announce names and then go through the bother of vetting them. Whereas you know, as I understood it, you know, and this is not a Democrat thing or a Republican thing, it was just sort of a a mainstream thing um, that for the longest time the, the pattern was you vetted these people uh, before you would actually announce their names. See, I view that as a clever strategy to save money by having the media do all the vetting for you. And you didn't actually <laughs> need to hire a team of vetters that way. Okay, but it also doesn't look good. Um, well, so, there's that. you know, it, there is that slight issue. Well, we're going to need sort of in terms of other things we're going to need to do in every blogging heads from here on out. It doesn't look good to us. Right. Okay. And, you know, I think the thing is here that 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 blogging heads and quite possibly people who watch blogging heads are no longer the desired audience for this for this little little fan dance. That's possible. But I can't see how even, you know, well, uh, the, the the most generous statement you could say is that the the Trumpkins, as it were, don't care about any of this? In other words, if you know, if it turns out that the Army uh, Secretary, with the Secretary of the Army or the Secretary of the Navy or um, the Labor Secretary, wind up withdrawing after they've been announced, that these are jobs that, frankly, no one cares about, and so it's not going to be that big of a deal. I can't see any way in which things like this, when they're not, you know, there are announcements and then suddenly reversals, in any way seems good. I just think well, it's, it's I, at best indifferent. I want to back up a bit and then um, to your assertion that, you know, this represents incompetence or that the process isn't working, where I think it's entirely possible that the process is working exactly the way it's supposed to, which is to say that you have political teams from the White House parachuted into the agencies and their job is to make sure that all 4,000 political appointee jobs are filled by people who share the ah. mission priorities and principles, if you can call them that, 
of the incoming administration. And, you know, the there's been some media coverage. There's a very amusing piece this morning, I think, in Politico with some great blind quotes. Um, you know, you have you, the, you have a Treasury secretary who actually tried to hire a Clinton donor. <gasps> Shocking. You know, you have both the State Department and uh, the Defense Department that have tried to hire people who signed Never Trump letters mm. um, or people who were affiliated with with prominent critics. And um, they get um, they get people uh, not by name, but saying this is how this is supposed to work and it's not going to change. And they get by the way, they also get some quotes that you could hear coming out of the White House liaisons in any administration saying, um, you know, these cabinet secretaries think that they control something and they need to learn they don't control anything. And that, um, you know, that to me has been sort of a, an element of unreality that has permeated much of the commentary about the administration, particularly, frankly, um, our national security colleagues who, who are under the illusion that cabinet secretaries drive American foreign policy. So here, unfortunately, I'm going to completely agree with you because this is actually one another. This is an at, I know, but I, I actually do agree with you. This is an aspect of the reporting that I, I've been genuinely flummoxed by where, um, you know, there's a story that comes out that the Trump White House vetoes someone that a cabinet secretary wants um, and that, oh, my God, the, the Trump landing teams are trying to make sure that there's cabinet, you know, like sub cabinet appointments that are actually loyal to the White House. I mean. This has been the playbook in, you know, in Washington since Ronald Reagan was uh, was inaugurated. The idea was you always try to appoint, you know, loyal, uh, you know, politically loyal appointees um, three deep in an administration. Isn't that more like going back to Adams and Jefferson? I I think I, I my understanding was that Reagan was really the first modern president where. I think it used to be the case that the cabinet officials did have more autonomy in terms of who they could pick for sub-cabinet. And I think it was, my understanding, the sort of conventional wisdom is always that it was Reagan that first really sort of centralized that process. Now, the counter to the, all right, so the counter I will offer, though, is that you can argue two things. First, admittedly, this is probably just rhetoric, but there was a lot of talk during the transition about how Trump really did plan on running a cabinet style of government with the idea that, he was going to outsource an awful lot of policy to the, you know, the cabinet officials, and he would just be busy trying to make America great again, um, which meant he didn't have to do that much. The second more important, I think, potentially more substantive thing is if there were actually implicit agreements by cabinet officials, you know, if Trump offered, let's say, Rex Tillerson the position of secretary of state with the understanding that, you know, or at least with Tillerson's understanding that he would accept Dan, I think your dog. I think your dog is confessing that it's up for Secretary of the Army. <laughs> Only, I uh, dog was completely quiet this morning. Never mind. Um, but that it, basically, that if these cabinet secretaries came in with an implicit understanding from Trump that they would be able to pick certain people, and now they're finding that's not the case, that might also explain the the many blind quotes uh, that that are in the Politico story. The um, the other thing that is worth pointing to over and over again is that um, ProPublica went out of its way to track down the backgrounds of as many as possible of the people who have actually come in at, you know, the sub-confirmation level. So there have been sort of building on the landing teams, there have been junior 
or mid-level um, folks brought into many of the departments. And um, now it may be that the more sensational examples that appeared on Twitter last night were grotesquely cherry-picked and most of them are that would just never fine happen on Twitter. professionals. But, um, but there was some, there's at least one case, there's a nominee or, or an appointee who only finished high school in 2015. Um, and it didn't seem to be the case of a person who'd had a challenging life and had gone back and finished high school after having a lot of work experience. That was not mm. my impression of what had happened. Um, there were a number of people with, with serious um, ethical or criminal lapses in their past. So, it's, but it's interesting that the, indif the supposed indifference to putting people in jobs was overcome long enough to stick these people in jobs. That is a fair point, although this raises a question where you're probably going to have better insider information than I do. The people who are on these landing teams, they are signing for short-term contracts. What is, the, what is the percentage of these that will wind up with you know, is it Schedule C that, you, that wind up being yeah. Schedule C appointees? No clue. Um, and okay. that seems, it seems to vary quite a bit from department to department that in some places you actually had multiple landing teams as, as sort of different people's fortunes went up and down in the, in the transition. So I have heard of some places where people on landing teams have settled in and taken jobs and others, others were not. So just, right. you know. And in some cases, the landing teams beyond the secretary themselves, himself, mostly himself, are the only other Trump people that are there. I mean, in the case of like Rex Tillerson at state, the only other Trump people there are or political appointees are from the landing team. Yeah, that's not quite true, actually. Um, Brian Hook is running policy planning there now. Um, oh, that's and so, so there there may be there may be a couple of other appointees like that. And then my understanding is there's a number of staffers in policy planning as well, including the White House liaison person. Right. And it's worth remembering, I, it, I, I specifically have a specific memory eight years ago now, Anne-Marie Slaughter was the head of policy planning at State, and she wound up actually having to staff Hillary directly for a fairly extended period of time because it was taking a while for the deputy and undersecretary people to get confirmed. But to be fair, I'm pretty sure by this point, at least, we actually knew who yeah. the deputy and undersecretaries you know, of state were going to be. Um, all we know with the Trump people is who is not going to be. Uh, namely, it is not going to be Ellie Abrams. Um, and we know it's not going to be John Huntsman now because uh, Huntsman's been announced to be the, uh, the U.S. ambassador to Russia. And the hot gossip around Washington was hot several days ago is that it's also not going to be Paula Dobryansky. Oh, who okay. was That's another kind of yeah. mainstream Republican national security figure who who had been rumored to be up for it for quite a while. Does the D.C. scuttlebutt say anything about John Bolton? Because that would be the logical name that I would think will wind up, you know, potentially being put forward. Not by well, logical, I don't mean in the sense of this is a good idea. I just mean in Trump world. You will remember that the Tillerson camp made darn sure that the New York Times knew that Tillerson did not want Bolton. Ah. Yes, but, um, what Tiller but this raises a much deeper and more awkward question, which is, does it really matter what Tillerson wants? Well, so this is where, I mean, both at, at state and defense, um, so far, you do seem to be seeing that the cabinet secretaries have enough, have enough clout to, to refuse. That they don't necessarily have affirmative clout to get people in that they do want, but you do, um, it does look as if um, 
cabinet secretaries have been able to either refuse or actually um, in the case of, of the service, some of the trouble with nominating service secretaries at, at DOD, it, it looks to me as if Mattis has actually been able to get people to withdraw. Right. I may be, I may be overstating that. Well, I was just saying, I mean, my, this goes back to the original point about whether these people have been vetted prior to the, the announcement. I, so this, this leads us to the next question, which is, I, I agree with you that there seems to be a mutual veto process at work, which is, is that the problem is, is that the White House can veto a name put forward by the cabinet secretary, and the cabinet secretary appears to be able to veto a name put forward by the White House, which means, you know, all the national security bureaucracies are essentially at this point not just understaffed in terms of political appointees, but because the names haven't even been agreed upon yet, they're going to be understaffed for months to come. Um, does that matter? Yeah, so this is where um, I am a bit of a minimizer in terms of how much that matters, um, which I recognize will make me very unpopular. Um, and though I am not saying that it is in any way a good thing, um, but I think the case that I've heard made that I, I, I really push back on strongly is the idea that once the bureaucracy is staffed up, it'll all be okay. And that, which thereby suggests that the primary problem that we have with this administration is the absence of smart senior people. And once smart senior people are in place, everything's going to be fine. And that I, I, as much as I have lots of respect for our smart senior people across the political divide, that's just not true. Well, okay, let me, so let me push back on that, which is to say, the way I would look at it is that you do want, you know, the, the cabinet people do need, you know, deputies and undersecretaries and so forth, because the problem is not so much... I wouldn't describe the problem the way you're saying it. The problem I would describe as the White House is unfortunately fully staffed up. Um, and because proximity to the president matters, the sort of biggest flubs that have been coming on the foreign policy slash national security side have been coming almost entirely from the White House, um, not from the departments. And the problem is, is that so long as you have a Steve Bannon who has a fair amount of staff, and so long as you have a National Security Council uh, where house from you know the, basically Michael Flynn's house has not been cleaned out, the the result is and and furthermore, let's just say it we've got a president who really has an unconstrained id uh, and unfortunately access to his iPhone. The result is a world in which the constraining forces on the White House screwing up are not all that powerful. So I, I agree with you. Once you get all these deputies and undersecretaries and so on and so forth, I don't think anything is going to be peachy keen. I just do think there might be something more of a check and balance against the White House just doing things really, really stupidly. Well, let's um, let's take a few of the sort of um, let's take some of the highlight reel from the last two weeks or okay. three weeks. So, you know, Tillerson goes to Mexico to try to improve the situation with Mexico. And the president decides to fire off some more obnoxious tweets about Mexico. Now, there is nothing that having an undersecretary or a regional assistant secretary would yeah. help you with there. Um, you, um, the refugee ban, I mean, I, and either you think, either you think the Muslim ban is still bad policy or you think it's good policy. If you think it's good policy or if you think it's like, okay, policy, you think it's not really that big a deal. 
If you think, yeah, it's not really that big a deal one way or the other, then you really don't want the number of sort of social media commentaries about how it was still a Muslim ban um, that came or how it was still targeted in particular ways that came out while it was being redrafted, thus carefully undermining the bureaucracy's efforts to, to create a product that would stand up in court. And that, again, is another one where, you know, the central problem of this administration, I just don't think is going to be curbed through the usual bureaucratic methods. Well, I'm not going to dispute that. Um, you know, that that's, uh, it's definitely hard to, to push back against that argument. I th- the other argument, though, uh, well, I would say two things. First, even if, the, let's say, the, you know, on the, on the immigration order, again, I don't even I don't like the revised order, but I think even proponents of it would acknowledge that the process by which the original order was issued was really bad. And that had they actually gone through the interagency process a little bit better and a little bit more carefully, they could have avoided um, an awful lot of the negative blowback uh, that the first month of the administration you know, had to cope with. Um, so things like that might have might have been avoided. The second thing that I'm worried about uh, is essentially if a cri- you know, in, in some ways the, the administration has been fortunate so far because there has not really been a precipitous foreign policy crisis. I think the closest you can come to is the North Korea situation, and that could actually mushroom further. Um, and what worries me is that, let's say the North Korea situation does mushroom further. Who the hell is the point person to China? Who the hell is the point person to, to South Korea? Um, who's the point person for Japan? That is where you actually do need a few actual yeah. people. Um, yep. and, and that, that really does concern me, I think. Yeah. You know, and I, I can't, I can't disagree with you okay. on, on that. And that actually seems like as good a moment of any to pivot to North Korea, yes. um, which helpfully in the midst of all this, um, you know, that we have what you could argue is a, is a slow rolling crisis with the North Koreans who first, um, you know, appear to have, killed the leader's brother in, in a, a fairly um, problematic, according to anyone's understanding of, of law, way. Also, uh, I, I believe the word gruesome comes to mind, given that uh, how yeah. he was killed. Yes. Yes. Um, bizarre. Yeah. But, but in addition to that, um, launched, um, had a new round of missile launches, and um, which, you know, on the one hand is concerning enough all by itself. On the other hand, we're sort of, in some ways, the the American polity is, is used to the North Koreans firing off missiles every now and again. Um, Jeff Lewis makes a point, uh, which I think is worth considering, in particularly in your context about staffing and regional relationships. You know, he says, um, the U.S., South Korea, and Japan are engaged in military exercises right now. And let's be clear, what the U.S., South Korea, and Japan are practicing is the prep for an invasion of North Korea. He says so. would be the, yeah. When Kim launches missiles and then helpfully sends out press releases with little circles drawn showing you all the other things that they could hit based on where the, all the, and, and in this case, all the U.S. bases or South Korean bases, you know, it, it really cliffs, cliff notes, really, really helpful to the analyst. Um, it says, you know, so the North Koreans are practicing a preemptive nuclear strike. And he, he has the wonderfully memorable line, which is, he says, um, South Korea, North Korea, and the U.S. all have plans for the peninsula that assume that they would go first. And two of the three of them will be wrong. 
Yes. Uh, no, I read that article. Um, I then drank an entire quart of Maalox after reading that article. Um, and, and furthermore, Lewis doesn't even talk about the fact that, you know, the U.S. has now deployed THAAD to South Korea, which is, of course, annoyed the Chinese no end um, for a variety of reasons. So that also makes coordination on this issue. I'm going to invite you to go into that a little more, actually, because I think um, my bold prediction is that we're, we're heading into a couple of years where we're all going to have to, well, those of us who have rusty missile defense knowledge from the 80s are going to have to haul it out. And those of you who don't are going to have to share the pain of the old folks. So, so Dan, remind us why THAAD bothers China. I mean, it's just, aimed, can't they tell it's just aimed at Pyongyang? So my understanding, and for the love of God, please correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, because I this is a little further afield from my expertise, but my understanding is THAAD is designed, again, you know, you would presumably think, well, it's purely a defensive weapon. It's designed to uh, combat North Korea if it launches missiles against South Korea. What would what possibly could uh, China have to protest? And China's answer is, is that we don't think that is really going to work terribly well. Um, against North Korea, but what will work super well is the radar systems that are attached to THAAD to monitor what the hell we, China, is doing uh, in Northeast Asia. Therefore, in some ways, this is a replay of the objections that Russia had uh, to the missile defense system that was imposed in Eastern Europe after, as Iran was, you know, uh, developing its ballistic missile program, where Russia argued, this isn't designed to combat Iran, this is designed to watch and monitor us. Um, and so this is why the Chinese have been vociferously objecting to any actual THAAD deployment for years now. Um, and in some ways, and let's be fair, this is, this is one area I want to stress where as, as much as I'm very concerned about what the Trump administration will do, I think this is one of those areas where they can legitimately say, look, we inherited this problem. You know, this is not a problem of our making. And they are absolutely right on that. Uh, the Obama administration, you know, we all, very famously, Obama told Trump, this is the you know issue number one on your security platter going forward. And again, to be fair, somewhat the Obama administration inherited from the Bush administration. So this has been a bipartisan foreign policy train wreck for quite some time. Uh, but that said, my, did I get the Thad description correct? Well, the only piece I was going to I was going to add to it yeah. is that the, the other sort of challenge that that introduces is if the North Koreans, you, so we, so we just said we're living, so we're living in a world where everybody thinks they have to go first, that, that the alternative to going first is annihilation of your, of your government, if not of your society. So um, if the North Koreans think that they might not be able to go first anymore, or that there's a time and after that time they might not be able to go first. Right, this is a closing window, yes. Yes, then you conceivably, you egg, either you egg the North Koreans on to act sooner, you egg the North Koreans on to, to build more and more and more missiles or more advanced delivery systems or different kinds of delivery systems, and that conceivably... Um, you this this supposedly defensive technology ends up making the the peninsula even less stable than it is now, without uh, necessarily giving you ironclad security if you're sitting at a cafe in Seoul. Yeah, so this raises the very very awkward question of what do you do in this situation? <laughs> because as it, yeah, the, the I, I wrote. 
I wrote about North Korea and sanctions when I was doing my dissertation uh, back uh, 20 years ago. Yeah, and it hasn't uh, gotten any better. No, and there's a quote that I remember from, from that book where I basically say, where, where a U.S. policymaker said, all policy options stink. Yeah. Um, and that has not changed in 20 years. Uh, the only thing that's changed is that the situation has gotten somewhat worse um, yeah. because North Korea now has nuclear weapons. So, you know, I, I guess... Let me put it this way. This, if, if there was ever a moment where presumably some sort of actual outsider were to come in and come up with some sort of disruptive way of thinking anew about how to deal with this situation, I might actually be somewhat receptive to that idea. I just don't know what the, the idea is that would actually alter the status quo. Um, well, it's, it's funny you mention that because, of course, there was um, a, a report recently that supposedly someone had, in fact, had that idea and had been using it for the last, what, um, five to eight years, and that supposedly we were launching offensive cyber operations, which was explaining why quite so many of the North Korea's missiles tended to go plop in the sea where they weren't supposed to. That right. is... Um, uh, it, uh, yeah, I have no way of, of judging independently the veracity of that. And it's certainly not all that reassuring after they managed to put four right where they wanted to put them this past weekend. So right. so that's, um, you know, it's, it's a good reminder that even sort of disruptive ideas maybe only disrupt so far. <laughs> They're temporary. I mean, in, in much the same way that Stuxnet in Iran, was, you know, clearly was only a temporary measure um, and also led to blowback that I think was in some ways was far worse down the road. Yep. Yeah, so the, the two things that I was going to say about North Korea policy, neither of which is a panacea, but both of which are going to be even harder to do in this environment. Um, one is you, you have a wing of the security community and of the Korea watcher community that has wanted to start some kind of direct outreach to the regime for a while. Now, A, you really, you, you aren't going to do that right after they, they offed the guy in the airport. That's just... Mm -hmm. That's not a realistic thing to ask a government to do, even if it's not this government, which is um, particularly ill set up to talk to forces like the North Korean government. But I don't know what the hell you're talking about. I mean, I'm sure this is just another number that Jared Kushner can put on his cell phone and handle, you know, on on his own. Um, yeah. Alas. Alas, Jared Kushner. Um, although I do, um, the mental picture of Jared Kushner going to North Korea is an interesting one. Oh, I would pay money to see that. Yeah, it's not yeah. the most insane idea, unfortunately. That that I'm just going to pause and, and and note that if I told you that a year ago we were going to have a conversation about where one of the bright ideas that that you know U.S. foreign policy could come up with would be to send the president's son-in-law to Pyongyang. We both would have drank a lot more, I think, in the last year. No, I would have looked at you and said, yes, it is a measure of Hillary Clinton's brilliance that she would consider sending Jared Kushner <laughs> to Pyongyang. <laughs> good, good counter. Sorry, but go ahead. The, the other sort of serious substantive point here is that you really cannot imagine, it's very hard to imagine a path to dealing with Pyongyang in a in a non um, non nuclear Holocaust way that doesn't involve really close working with China. And Correct. now, 
Yeah. The good news here, the good news here, I think, well, maybe I'll start with the bad news and then we'll go on to the good news because maybe you can explain the good news to us. But obviously the bad news here is that security cooperation with China seems to be very low on Trump's list of priorities and his defense establishment guys are also people who are who are not enthusiastic about the um, about the the sort of cooperation potential with China. They don't come from the panda hugging wing of the security establishment. Right. The good news, however, Professor Dresner, is how many new trademarks did the Chinese government just give um, Trump business interests? So clearly, you know, things are things are looking up and it's all going to be OK. Right. <laughs> Yes, now that Trump escorts is a thing in China, uh, you know. Wait, so knows? that's real? That I saw, I saw that on Twitter, and I was hoping it wasn't real. I saw it on Twitter as well, and I haven't clicked on the link. But you know, that's not a <laughs> sentence that you. Uh, I haven't clicked on the link for a whole variety of reasons. Um, so you know that that's one of those things where I'm just going to assume the legend is true. Um, all right, so. Let me let me put it this way. The, Bruce Jones, I think, had a uh, and Jonathan Pollack had a piece um, in Nikkei World Review, I think, but also for Brookings, where they they basically argued that if you take a look at what the Trump administration has done with respect to the Pacific Rim, it is weirdly their most conventional area. In other words, that that for all that the administration said, you know, during the campaign and for all the Trump phone call to Taiwan and so on and so forth that happened during the transition. We are now in a place roughly where we would have expected to be had any other Republican won the nomination um, and been elected president. So wait, wait, wait. Are you telling me that kicking the TPP to the curb didn't really matter very much? I'm oh. shocked. I'm, I forgot I'm, about I'm, TPP. I'm, so no, I'm not going to. All right. I meant security, which of course TPP is part of, and that drives me around the friggin' bend, but let's not get into that. So I, TPP accepted. Um you know, the fact that the administration is now essentially reverted to one China, um, you know, which you can argue has been Tillerson's greatest accomplishment so far, Secretary of State. The fact that the administration is clearly provided, you know, uh, verbal, you know, reassurances to both Japan and South Korea um, about the security relationship. The fact that Mattis has been out there um, also to reassure somewhat nervous allies about what is going on. And that that is being deployed, which the Obama administration would have done in all likelihood, had there been a third term or had Hillary Clinton been president now, I would suspect. Um, so on all of those things, despite all the rhetoric about how there was going to be, you know, a new kind of thinking, really what's happened to date has been pretty much the, the standard playbook, which, by the way, I think is, again, somewhat mixed news, because on the one hand, it suggests that Trump is not going to be terribly unconventional when it comes to this part of the world. The problem is, is that I'm not convinced that the conventional way of dealing with this really gets us anywhere better, just become slightly more predictable. So I got two questions for you on that. One is, um, you know, Obama had um, had done pretty well at building up relationships in Asia. He some of his closest relationships were with Asian leaders. Um, and Clinton, of course, was well known in, in the region as well. Do we think do we think that the um, and, and you know the, the region that we're sort of interesting there was interesting divergent reporting in terms of what people in Asia thought about the idea of Trump being president? Do we think that Trump and his cabinet go to Asia with you know with what sort of degree of of rapport of respect of perception of America as a 
as a declining or present influence in the area? You know, has, how has that been affected? Um, and or perhaps you'd like to make perhaps you'd like to make the brand of political science argument that says that doesn't matter. <laughs> Heather, since the days of Thucydides, um, <laughs> I've always wanted to do that. <laughs> Since the days of Thucydides, great powers have always been had to project the, you know, reassure nervous ally. No. Um, so how would I put this? My understanding is that on the Chinese side, you can argue that re- I don't think they know what to think at this point. I think there was some genuine enthusiasm for Trump uh, during the campaign, both because, generally speaking, China prefers Republicans in power um, and they liked the idea that Trump was a businessman, and they really didn't like Hillary Clinton, um, you know, in no small part because this goes all the way back to the the Women's Day speech, or the Women's Conference in uh, in Beijing. Um, obviously, the questioning of one China totally scrambled that, um, which which uh, truly led to you know to a chill in that sense. I, the, the I think the problem is, and again, correct me if I'm wrong. The way the Chinese like to deal with the United States is they like one interlocutor. They like to know that there is a reliable channel. Now, during the Bush years, that was, you know, towards the end, it was Hank Paulson um, that, that they primarily talked to. During, you know, the a lot of the, 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 sorry, the, the Obama years, it was Jim Steinberg and or Tom Donilon. Um, and during the second part of the Obama administration, there wasn't, a lot of people, which was part of the problem. Um, I don't know if it's supposed to be Terry Branson. I don't even know if Terry Branson has been confirmed yet. No. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that actually, that was, honestly, that that pick for him to be ambassador was the one that I probably have been the highest on among Trump's coterie, because that actually made a great deal of substantive sense, um, especially given his close ties to Xi Jinping. I think the problem is, at this point, is that no one knows exactly what to expect from this administration. And it's been part of a larger issue with this administration on both foreign economic policy and foreign policy, which is it's not that you can't point to statements that have been made by some people that should be reassuring to allies and or understandable to rivals. It's that there has been no coherence whatsoever, that you've got the Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense saying one thing, but then you have the White House saying something else, and there's no way to interpret what's going on. Well, that sort of loops back around to the other um, thing that I wonder about <coughs> China policy, which is part of what what seems to me, I mean, I, I, our China policy is always somewhat incoherent in this regard, and Trump kind of perfectly encapsulates it, that you have both um, this urgent need to have the economic relationship with China and at the same time, a desire to stake out a fairly, at least rhetorically hawkish stance on the security side. Um, and to what, you know, should one, should one assume that the security side wins in the end? Should one assume that the economic side wins in the end? How do, how does, how do the Chinese authorities view the interplay between the two sectors? You know, how can we... How can we citizens understand what the hell is going on there? Look, if I had to bet um, which side is going to win out, it's going to be the security side every day of the week and twice on Sundays um, for a few reasons. The first is is that the security side generally 
often tends to win out in these situations. I think with Trump, that's particularly concentrated first because Trump really does have a legitimately different view on the way in which trade is supposed to benefit or the economic relationship is supposed to benefit the United States. I think a deeper psychological reason for Trump is that the only group of actors, Trump, Trump respects two kinds of people, which is generals and billionaires. Um, and he's got more generals on his national security cabinet than he does billionaires. Um, and even the billionaires are a little dubious about the economic relationship with China. So, yeah, and that doesn't even count the White House people who are all, you know, sort of economic nationalists on this front. So I can't see a scenario where if a crisis with China, you know, emerges and the president, ha you know, is asked to weigh the costs and benefits of disrupting the economic relationship as a way of, of bolstering the U.S.'s, America's security position in the Pacific Rim, I can't see who's going to tell him, no, 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 you got to worry about the economics of this. There, there, there are mutual costs on this. He's not going to care about that. That makes sense. Um, this also seems, and I noticed um, Jared Bernstein was out there this morning sort of trying to list off the number of um, misunderstandings of how trade works that had been um, enunciated by the administration in, in recent days. And that did sound like kind of the perfect topic for a Dan Dresner listicle. Oh, Christ. So I wrote something for the Post this morning on this where, uh, you know, my favorite quote, I believe, which uh, uh, Wilbur Ross said on CNBC was that the problem is not that the U.S. dollar is overvalued. It's that other currencies are 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 not as expensive as they should be, um, which if I could head desk onto the laptop, I would, um, because it's that's a that's a distinction without a difference. Um, not to mention that. P and again, this is another example where there's policy and coherence because you have Peter Navarro running off. You know, and talking to uh, writing op-eds in the Wall Street Journal and, and talking to the Wall Street Journal, saying things like we want to negotiate directly with Germany um, on how we can reduce our bilateral trade deficit. And there, there's like a six different ways I can explain that that's not how this works. Um, the most obvious being is that Germany has no trade, po you know, trade competency on this front, um, that it really is an EU wide uh, aspect of this. And then there's also the most painful thing I have read um, over the last week or so was Michael Grunwald had a great piece in Politico um, earlier this week talking about the ways in which the Obama administration actually did renegotiate NAFTA. Um, and the way they renegotiated NAFTA was by negotiating the TPP, that the trans one, of the, one of the utilities of the Trans-Pacific Partnership for the Obama administration was because both Canada and Mexico wanted in, um, they had to make greater concessions than they had made for NAFTA, uh, you know, in terms of Mexico on labor rights and in terms of Canada on dairy imports. And basically, the U.S. didn't have to give up on anything because what the U.S. was able to offer was membership into TPP. Um, but then, of course, that was, as you said, the very first thing, the first meaningful thing the Trump White House did, um, which was to pull out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, which raises a really interesting question, which is that the Trump administration clearly seems to believe that multilateral trade regimes are not in its interest, that the better way that it can conduct trade policy is through a series of bilateral trade deals. And I think the argument they, they must be making or thinking is that 
in a bilateral situation, because the U.S. has such significant amounts of market power, it can, you know, essentially dictate terms to other states uh, and therefore will be able to get what it wants. Um, I would say a few things on this. Uh, the first is, is that that presumes that you're starting from tabula rasa, um, that you don't have pre-existing trade agreements. And the problem is, is that you do. So unless the Trump administration actually withdraws from the WTO and NAFTA, which there is a chance it will do, um, I, I can't, there's a non-zero probability that that happens. Unless it really does actually totally wipe the slate clean, I don't think that strategy works. Um, the second thing, and this is almost banal to point out, but, but it really does need to be said, I don't think it occurs to the either Trump or his trade negotiators, the trade negotiations are designed to be win-win arrangements, which is that Grunwald has this great quote from, from Trump complaining during the campaign that like us trade negotiators almost were acting like they wanted. That's my dog calling, asking for you to vet him. Uh, oh, that's <laughs> um, so, uh, that I totally lost my train of thought. Um, Sorry about that. No, that's okay. Uh, oh, that, that, you know, Trump basically said, you know, it's like U.S. trade negotiators want other countries to win from trade deals. And the answer is, is the, the dirty secret is, is that trade negotiators want the other country to win also from trade deals. That's the way in which trade deals sustain themselves. Um, and if they don't, you know, if, if the other country doesn't benefit, shockingly, they're not going to want to sign um, a trade deal. And furthermore, because of the way in which Trump is, has jawboned countries like Mexico or others, the political incentives for those countries to sign, you know, enhanced trade deals with the, with the Trump administration has been dramatically reduced. Um, there's no way that the president of Mexico is going to be able to sign any kind of trade deal uh, with the Trump administration and not be immediately kicked out come the 2019, I think, uh, or 2018 uh, Mexican presidential election. Um, that person will probably, he might be kicked out anyway, but that that doesn't change the dynamics we're talking about here. And then there's one last reason that I think the, the Trump administration doesn't like multilateral trade rules, um, which is that these guys are populists. Um, and I, by populists, I don't just mean economic populists, they're political populists as well. And the one thing political populists don't like is alternative centers of power. Um and the thing that the WTO and or the TPP would have offered are dispute settlement understandings that are outside the purview of the United States. And that forces the United States to comply if it loses on a trade dispute, um, which happens from time to time, even though the U.S. prosper, you know, benefits a great deal from these understandings. I'm I'm chuckling, Dan, at um, at the the image of um, given given the enormous unpopularity of the the um, dispute resolution processes and the, the perception of them as sort of being totally divorced from, from the interests of, of regular Americans. I'm, I'm, I'm chortling at the idea of you reinventing them as, as an anti-Trump feature. So I'm, I'm just being, being entertained by that. Well, I, I think, first of all, let's be blunt. The American public has no idea what the dispute settlement understanding is. This is not a, a process that I think generates feelings one way or the other. I would strength if you look at sort of not the people who came out and told pollsters they didn't like TPP, but the people who made the choice to make TPP an issue around which there was organizing, 
Um, the dispute resolution mechanisms, the dispute settlement mechanisms are one of the major rallying points. You would, you would be surprised. It's, it's really, it's very, it's an interesting commentary on globalization and its discontents because you're absolutely right that the people who designed them never, ever imagined them having anything to say to, to citizens. And I mean, frankly, that's part of the problem that the whole structure was allowed to grow up as far as it did without anybody thinking about, you know, how to make it fit into mm-hmm. our or any other democratic society. But I wanted, actually, I did want to just get in and in defense of Trump's sentence, which just, just for fun, because okay, it's surprising ahead. when I do that. But in defense of Trump, I mean, with the exception of TPP, I mean, it's been a, it's been a not so controversial bipartisan viewpoint for a while now that multilateral trade deals were um, were on life support, right? That they had become so difficult and so complicated that, you know, there was a long stretch of time, if we're honest, starting with the deals in the late Clinton administration through Bush, and then certainly the bilateral deals in, in Obama's first term, where everybody was going for bilateral instead of multilateral. So so that that is a place that the I mean, I totally agree with you about the the sort of zero-sum economic view of the world, which it makes it hard to do any kind of trade deal. Yeah. Um, but but the the disdain or the the perception of inutility in multilateral trade processes is not unique to the Trump administration. No, but I would push back on on this sense. First of all, I would agree that the perception was, and the perception was accurate, that continued multi, you know, liberalization through the WTO, through things like the Doha round, the transaction costs on on that track had become prohibitive. There's no denying that, and I'm not going to you know, defend that. Um, but I would say there were, there were two other recognitions. The first was, was that even if there wasn't going to be much further liberalization via the WTO, that, that the WTO had already accomplished a fair amount in terms of liberalization, and part of the reason that you did not see a return to protectionism um, post-2008 was that, in fact, the WTO did a relatively decent job of keeping protectionism at the ticky-tack level rather than being more substantive, and part of that was due to the dispute settlement understanding. So it's, it's almost a stock versus flow question. I would argue the WTO still matters a great deal in terms of preserving the degree of trade liberalization we've had to date. If you want to talk about going forward, I'm not going to dispute that point. I think you're right about that. Um, But even there, the response by the Obama administration to that was not more bilaterals. I mean, inherited some bilaterals from the Bush years. But even there, so I'd say two things. First, during the Bush years, the reason there were bilaterals was that Bob Zellick actually thought that if you signed enough bilaterals, it would eventually put pressure on other participants in the Doha round to complete the Doha round. Now that turned out not to be true, so I, I'm not going to uh, uh, I'm not going to you know d- uh, to say Bob Zellick was right, but I would say that is a classic example of trying to use you know bilateral or regional deals as a way of pushing the multilateral process, um, much in the same way that NAFTA you know seemed to do for the Uruguay round of GATT. The second thing I would argue is that the Obama administration, by you know its second term, had arrived upon a strategy which was not to pursue any more bilaterals, but instead to do these mega regional deals, namely TPP um, and TTIP on the transatlantic side. Um, And it will always be my frustration. I still owe Phil Levy from the Chicago Council uh, a massive steak dinner because I thought those deals were going to be done by the end of the Obama 
second term, and clearly he was savvier, far savvier on that uh, than I was. But you would, I would argue that those deals were of significant size um, to justify, you know, doing them, and 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 they had enough multilateralness, for lack of a better way of putting it, so that they could lead to things like China and, or sorry, like um, Canada and Mexico making the necessary trade concessions. So you're right. I don't want to say that the multilateral trade system is working perfectly. It certainly is not. But it has accomplished a great deal. And I think throwing it out because you're not seeing any forward momentum would be an act of lunacy. Yeah, I, I want to stipulate that one can be um, TPP neutral or a TPP skeptic and still think that assaults on the WTO and other sort of core yeah. principles of how we do trade and of how the U.S. has set itself up to be an engine of trade globally are, are going to be, you know, quite likely do more harm than good for the American worker and quite possibly catastrophic for the global system. Um, and one can believe all of that and at the same time note that the most dire consequences that seem to have emerged from the collapse of TPP are political. Which, yes, may, I, which may suggest that there was not as much there there as um, TPP proponents like to suggest. Well, again, this is one of these questions. I mean, it's always the politics of counterfactuals. I, I was always a fan of TPP, not so much for the economics of it, but for, in fact, for the security of it, um, which was it was a way to signal to our allies in the region that we weren't going anywhere. And I think in some ways it, was, it allowed for a slight tweaking of NAFTA. And I, this is one of the... This goes back to this thing we we talked about um, the last you know, you know the last issue of Dresbert, which is one of the problems we have now in Washington is when there are deals that are struck, you know, both domestic and international, eventually problems emerge um, because these are always imperfect deals. And the the ordinary you know it used to be the case when that when that would happen that you would then tweak them somehow, um, and there would be bipartisan support for the tweaking. Uh, that is gone now. And so as a result, you are, you're in a situation where any neutral policy observer will acknowledge that NAFTA probably in some ways does need to be renegotiated across a variety of issues. Just because the actual, you know, things like, you know, local content of automobiles was written 25 years ago and autos have changed a wee bit since then. So it would be entirely appropriate for everyone to update that. Uh, the problem is, is that you're not going to see any support for that in, you know, or you're not going to see... Um, a bargaining core for that because each of the the numerous actors have very different policy preferences on this. Um, so that's the de the depressing thing about it, this entire conversation. Yeah, well, just in case we weren't being depressing enough, as as kind of a final set of thoughts, I wanted to. I really didn't want to lose, you know, the point you made that the the core the core difference in Trump's approach is not even actually whether he cares about dairy access with Canada or labor rights in Mexico or TPP itself. The core difference, you know, is that both on the economic and on the security side, it is a very zero sum, a zero sum, yeah. what have you done for me lately approach to the world. And on the political and, and security side, it's a, it's a vision of America's prosperity and safety that defines America quite differently from how um, Democrats, but also how the center-right had defined America in, in recent years. And that, you know, to me, I mean, just to, to loop all the way back to, to our initial conversation, my 
the intensity of my frustration with uh, colleagues and commentators who assert that, you know, getting the right staff people in place will will solve the problems that we face is, you know, you still have a president who has been very careful to appoint all White House staff and many um, cabinet appointees whose idea of the America and the aspects of America that need defending are different from that which number one, many of us believe in, and number two, which we have been propounding highly imperfectly and with many screw-ups, but nonetheless, which we have been propounding around the world in the the post-Cold War era. And so, you know, you can... You can have a great and very effective Secretary of State, and you can have an excellent team. And if you're still telling your Muslim allies, A, we don't want you coming here, B, we don't think your religion's really a religion, we think it's an ideology, and C, we're edging toward changing that in our country so your co-religionists who live here don't enjoy the same First Amendment protections that, you know, Jewish Dan Dresner and Christian Heather Hurlburt do, um, that is that is not a problem that an undersecretary of state can fix. And it is not a problem that the political establishment should be pushing away from its consciousness by saying to itself, oh, you know, we'll get the undersecretary in there and he won't be able to embarrass us quite so badly. No, I mean, I would say the most embarrassing aspect of the last week or so of the uh, of the Trump administration was the fact that Rex Tillerson did not appear uh, when the State Department issued its annual human rights report, um, which is a sort of big deal that the the State Department does every year. Um, And again, even if, in some ways, this is actually, I think, is the most telling aspect of the Trump administration's approach to the rest of the world, which is they're de-emphasizing, you know, human human rights to a great degree. Now, I would argue that there is a good debate to be had about the extent to which human rights and democracy promotion should be a big part of, of American foreign policy. And I think it's perfectly fine to say that should be radically de-emphasized in the world we live in. But even even people who ordinarily are extremely phobic about talking about this stuff, I think we're somewhat taken aback that Tillerson did not even you know introduce the human rights report because that was pretty much sort of how it's been done uh, you know for decades. And and even if you say that it shouldn't be a top priority. There should be no problem whatsoever with reporting on this stuff. Um, and instead, the reporting itself even got de-emphasized. So as a result, even like, let's say, libertarians who ordinarily are not big fans of talking about this um, said, yeah, this is a little weird. Yeah. And, and again, to, to point to sort of what's, a, what's an underlying problem that we see reflected across agencies is this idea that the, the ruling powers can dissociate themselves from and and discredit particular things that are being done by the government, which is allegedly the the expression of them and of all of us. And that that points down the road toward personalized rule where, you know, it no longer matters what the the State Department says. It only matters what the what the White House says. And and there again, you know, it, it shouldn't matter whether you care about human rights or not, you know, whether you care about whether there are, you know, policies to help you figure out how your transgender child can navigate school safely on the website, whether there's information about climate change on a website or whether weather data is publicly available. You know, any one of those things is less important than the idea that, you um, 
we can decide through democratic processes that government does certain things. We can also decide through democratic processes that government doesn't do those things. But that that suddenly now it's okay to have an elected leader who can just ignore or not not validate, or just, not not or work call from. it the deep state. You know, which is, I mean, in some oh, ways, that we got to do. We got to do a whole nother episode on the deep state, frankly. Yes, um, I, I, until you know, until we've run we, out of time, yeah, yes. So, but but that, you know, th- I think that's the deeper. That's the problem. That's the deeper problem with the state, if you will. Yes. No. And that the, the essentially what what is it's simultaneously serving because the Trump administration is clearly the executive branch, and yet they've also declared war on certain aspects of the the permanent bureaucracy and the result is in a way that like i mean previous republican administrations have come in and been suspicious of bureaucrats but not to the degree that you know i was there during the bush trans you know transition and there were certainly culture clashes then but there was also eventually a learning process that took place on both sides about what it was that the the political appointees wanted but also the political appointees learned the value of the permanent bureaucracy and i think in some ways the crucial question for what the trump administration looks like going forward is does that mutual learning process take place or not? Well, color me skeptical, but I will hope to be proven wrong, and then I will hope that sometime soon I will I will also I will owe you a giant steak dinner. How about that? There we go. I'm always happy to accept that. <laughs> uh, all right. Until well, right. next time, blogging heads. So long. Thanks for listening to Blogging Heads TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Blogging Heads episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at bloggingheads.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.